Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Libera podcast. Have you wondered what the last days of Satoshi were like, and what was Satoshi's image amongst the early community of Bitcoiners? How did things change as Bitcoin got bigger, and what were some of the mistakes and bugs early in Bitcoin's life, and how does that color our view going forward? Today, Pete Rizzo, editor at Bitcoin Magazine and editor-in-chief for Kraken, joins me on the show to talk about his latest piece, The Last Days of Satoshi. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally, Corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Lend at HODL HODL is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. There's no KYC. So if you have stable coins, you can lend them out and earn some returns. On the other hand, if you're sitting on some Bitcoins and you need some liquidity for living expenses or for whatever you need, you can get some fiat stablecoin liquidity by collateralizing some of your Bitcoin, and you don't have to trust one single party. In this case, it's actually locked in a two of three multi-signature escrow. So HODL HODL will hold one key and then the, the counterparty will hold the other key. So this is a Bitcoin DeFi, peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. You set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you looking to get involved with Bitcoin mining? Compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin. This is the anti-cloud mining option. Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. So for a long time, we've heard mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money and you've got access to industrial power rates and not the residential rates that you might have at home. Well, now with Compass, everyone can tap into those economies of scale. Check out my earlier episode, 259, with Whit Gibbs, where we spoke about the process. But Compass offer hardware and hosting bundles, and you can quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware that you own. Go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show with Pete. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here and uh, excited to chat. Yeah, man. So I've had a chance to read your uh, article about what happened when uh, Satoshi disappeared. And I think uh, it's a good one to get into. Um, But also, just for listeners who don't know you, can you just uh, take a minute and just tell them a bit about yourself and your involvement in in the Bitcoin world? Yeah, oh boy. Uh, Yeah, I've been here for eight plus years now. Uh, Editor at Bitcoin Magazine, editor at large at the Kraken Cryptocurrency Exchange, uh, best known for being sort of the original founding editor over at Coindesk, uh, growing that uh, business up over time. But uh, yeah, I've been spending a lot of my time of late uh, diving pretty deep into the Bitcoin archives, Uh, you know, just tried to trying to get to the bottom of some of the things and the mythology that we've heard about over the years, right? I think um, over time, 
time. I've, I've definitely become a more of a Bitcoin believer as, as most people have. I think I've shed the objectivity and, you know, sort of have that, uh, you know, sight line of, look, Bitcoin is an invention. It's it's going to be one of the things that really stands the test of time. Uh, and, you know, once I kind of locked in on that, it, it really became shifting my work over to sort of digging into, okay, like who were the people and events that shaped the technology and what do we actually know about them? And, you know, as I kept digging, uh, I just found that we know less and less, right? Uh, there's a lot of kind of pivotal events in the in the technology's um, development that really have just been understudied, uh, under contextualized and, you know, have just resulted in sort of like, uh, you know, sort of these weird memes that aren't aren't actually super true if you if you look at what happens. Uh, and that's one of the crazy things about Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's an uh, entirely digital money. It's an entirely digital creation and full record of its existence lives on the Internet. Right. So it's it's basically open and public uh, for anyone, uh, you know, willing to, to take a dive in there. So, uh, yeah, that's been my recent focus. And yeah, I was excited to publish today, obviously, the 10th anniversary of, I think, Satoshi kind of handing over the keys to the project. Uh, you know, was a milestone that felt like it needed to be marked. Uh, I was happy to do it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's like this whole idea of having Bitcoin historians because uh, certainly there are memes and things, and you know maybe occasionally someone might point to an old forum post or some old email and say, "Oh, look, see, this is Satoshi meant this because he said this on the right. Bitcoin Talk forum." <laughs> yeah. and, whatever day and whatever year and obviously there are certain well-known resources in the community like you know the Nakamoto Institute run by my friends Bitstein and uh, Pierre Rashad and you know but there's a yeah, very good resource yeah and it's like there, there are now there's more of an effort if you will on actually cataloging some of this and I think a really good example as well is Jonathan Beer's book The Block Size War really great book um, and you're also doing a lot of work around this also because it's kind of going back and digging through the archives so what was that like for you and how did you start that process. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just stripping away sort of the uh, idea that the past is sort of like this blank time that just uh, there has no me- immediacy. So I think for me with this one, uh, I had written at the end of last year with Aaron Van Wordham, we we did a sort of deep dive into the first Bitcoin war, which was, you know, after Satoshi had left, how the developers actually enacted the first soft fork uh, for Bitcoin. It was called P2SH. Uh, essentially, it's, a, you know, a code format that enabled multi-sig and a lot of the uh, a lot of different things that we have today. And it sort of went into the, the politics and dynamics of of how that played out. I think as a result of that, and you mentioned Jonathan uh, Beer's book about the block size wars. I, I think that one's interesting because I think, you know, in considering that time period, um, you know, which I've done a lot as well, it's, it, it just became kind of more obvious to me that really everything kind of starts back at the beginning. And, you know, we really didn't have and don't currently have a great picture of like what, you know, Satoshi's tenure as software developer was like. So I think there was a lot of, um, you know, again, tendency to kind of color the present with our perception of the past, which I doesn't really meet uh, what actually occurred. So I think for me, the more that I sort of dove into things and tried to contextualize like my own understanding of what had happened in Bitcoin, the more that I said, okay, I just have to go back to the beginning. Uh, what did the people who were there experience? Like, what were their interactions with Satoshi like? Because I think it's really easy uh, to just separate people uh, in, into ideologies in Bitcoin, to kind of make us versus them camps. I think this has really happened a lot along the, along the block size war stuff. Even even today, a lot of the things are sort of oh, these people were bad because they thought a certain thought a certain thing but um i really wanted to go back and just free myself from any like preconceptions what do i actually think as someone who's just reading these things and experiencing them in real time and i think i guess what i would hope for people who, who read this piece if you check it out uh is that you get kind of a feeling of what it was like to be there at the time right i didn't want bitcoin to feel like this like quaint 
dark thing in the past. Um, yeah, I think when we think about the early days of Bitcoin, we think about it's like this black box where Satoshi was just like in front of a computer by himself. Uh, but actually, there was like many people <laughs> doing a lot of things. The article gets into some of like the sillier moments where, you know, they're launching the first exchanges and they're debating what Bitcoin should be worth. And, and you know, I really wanted to paint the idea that these were all like communal decisions that even though we think of Satoshi as, as being sort of the, the benevolent leader of the project, which I think he was to some degree, it was still very communal, right? People, there was a, a great activity around Bitcoin. Uh, even, um, you know, they get into, it gets into the, um, you know, some one of the first public efforts to promote Bitcoin and how that was a user-led decision, how Satoshi really wasn't uh, super in favor of that. And then, you know, it sort of causes the whole, you know, uh, then nascent ecosystem to be overrun, like the exchanges go down and it goes down from like 10 cents to 5 cents. And, and people think this is just a great tragedy where, you know, uh, there's speculation that the bankers are trying to subvert the network and all these things. And I guess I really wanted to add a lot of that context because I think, again, it's really easy to just like think that this is a time period that has no substance when really these people were living like full and active lives and like their concerns and dramas were just very important to them. Um, so I think I wanted to get a lot of that out and I, I really wanted to kind of reckon with, okay, well, how did Satoshi actually lead the Bitcoin project? Because how can you really know anything else if you don't know that? Because that's sort of the foundational aspect for everyone's perception in Bitcoin thereafter, right? Like there was a group of developers that worked with with Satoshi directly. Um, for better, for worse, like one of my theses is I think most developers want to feel like they are doing what Satoshi would have wanted. Uh, I think even today, you, you sort of mentioned, right? People on Twitter, they're constantly evoking Satoshi. We have this weird sort of father figure relationship with Satoshi. We want Satoshi to think that we're doing well for us, right? Um, so I think that I really wanted to get to the bottom of that and, and kind of develop my own picture of Satoshi as a character that wasn't just, you know, some guy who invented something, which he was, uh, you know, and, and that's certainly, you know, there certainly is Satoshi the inventor. I think this story takes a look at Satoshi the project manager and the flaws and sort of missteps and, and things that he did uh, that are a little bit more, uh, less black and white than some of the things presented on Twitter. Yeah. And so when Bitcoin first started, it's all early. And I guess it's like many things. It's like there's a honeymoon period and then maybe there's some conflict that comes up, right? So what were some, you know, what were some of the first few conflicts that came up in the whole Bitcoin world? I think it's really interesting that, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a honeymoon period, like first, uh, you know, for, for the first, like really half of 2010, you know, 2009 is kind of this great blank period, right? Where there's really like nothing, right? You can go through the logs and there's just weeks that pass without any transactions. Uh, presumably people are claiming coins at their mind, but you know, there's, there's not really a great record on that. There's just like kind of nothing happening, right? Uh, and it really is until the forums that Satoshi creates at the end of 2009 that sort of gets people together. And I think that's kind of an interesting point when you think about it. It's that Satoshi invented something, but he needed to keep moving the project forward in order for it to advance. Um, and that gets you to kind of the point where it's just like Satoshi created Bitcoin, but that didn't actually birth Bitcoin. You know, he even though he had solved it, he had to get people to care about it and buy, and buy into it. So he has to kind of do all this other stuff. Uh, I think it isn't to like mid 2010 uh, where what happens, I think, is that there's actually a big code exploit. So in, in the middle of 2010, what happens is that, you know, the project's getting big enough that actually serious, talented coders begin to be interested and they're downloading the code and they're actually really going over it and looking for the kind of things that advanced coders would look for, which is, can I hack this thing? <laughs> can I steal the money? <laughs> and is there something bad that I can do uh, to this new uh, decentralized money project that's now worth, you know, I think then it was like half half a million or something like that, right? So people start downloading it uh, and, and people are reporting it a uh, bug to Satoshi for some period in July. And then what happens in August is that someone actually exploits one of those bugs. So somebody actually uh, creates his own client, right? So they, they make this kind of their own version of, of, of Bitcoin. Uh, they, uh, you know, code it such 
such that uh, there's a value overflow. So essentially, they pre-programmed the digits of the transaction. So you know, they said the input was you know negative 100 million coins or something like that, and it and it, and it basically tricks the protocol into thinking that uh, 184 billion bitcoins that didn't exist got printed. Right. So I think this is a pretty pivotal event for Satoshi. He actually, from what I can tell, gets pretty freaked out by this uh, and and really kind of goes through a period where he's making a lot of very rash kind of like quick decisions for Bitcoin and really exercising his authority in ways that I think if anyone did that now, they would be very suspect. Uh, But back then it was still possible for him to do that. Uh, And there's a number of instances, right? So he, uh, you know, changes how the software behaves. He changes the rules for transactions. And most notably, he just kind of like sticks this random block size limit like into the code uh, and actually doesn't even in the release notes for that software actually even announce that he did it. It's something that they discover later (laughs) that he had done. And again, this kind of gets into like you can tell certain traits from someone's behavior, right? So his posts become more frequent. They become less detailed. They're kind of like overlooking things. There's one message that he gives where he's like, please upgrade now ASAP. And people are commenting on the code and they're like, hey, are you going to publish anything for us to look at or we're just download this code? So yeah, there is a period where they start kind of questioning, okay, like, well, what's going on here? And I think some of the developers, especially the ones uh, who had more open source expertise, I think Jeff Garzik in particular kind of stands out as this, who I couldn't imagine would have been very impressed with Satoshi. He kind of enters the project at a point where Satoshi is very, you know, whimsical. He's like kind of doing all these things, um, not being very open, not displaying the characteristics that maybe he would have wanted. And that leads to a period sort of towards the end of 2010, where there's there is more direct conflict with Satoshi. Uh, some of that is passive and some of that's more active. So there is at the end of 2010, uh, sort of a debate over, uh, you know, Satoshi basically tries to limit the types of transactions that should go that that users can make, right? So when Satoshi wrote the code, he includes hundreds of transactions that include like all sorts of different things that he envisioned, uh, like multi-sig would have been a great example, right? Uh, something where you can use multiple keys to move coins. Uh, so he would he would have said, basically, I don't want anybody doing anything advanced like that. You can only send these types of transactions. And in that case, the, the users and uh, Michael Markart, best known now as Thamos, kind of leads a, a somewhat minor revolt <laughs> against Satoshi, where uh, he's like, you know, you, you know, we don't want this code. We're going to we're going to do something else. But yeah, I think it's a, you know, from what I could tell, it's like it was a lot more acrimonious with Satoshi than I would have expected. And I think there were some interesting reasons for that. Um, one, most people were actually much more technical back then in the project, right? So uh, I think the average di- like technical difference between like Satoshi's expertise and the average user just wouldn't have been that large. Um, so they were more apt to view him as someone who like wasn't helping them directly and like just could have been um, <laughs> like making their lives easier, but just wasn't for whatever reason. So like one contingent that's kind of amusing is the, is the miners because they're the ones who are really, you know, Satoshi doesn't actually develop Bitcoin's mining code like in any substantial way. Uh, so he's not actually making it easier for you as a user to mine and generate more Bitcoin. Uh, the users are doing all that. So they're actually leading kind of the optimization there, which is inter- interesting to think about. There's a whole kind of section of the code that would have been largely kind of developed by the community. Um, and their attitude to him is like really dismissive <laughs> because he's just not really doing anything to help them. He's not like merging the things that they've added that they like. Uh, so that they begin to be a bit, a bit more antagonistic. And then, you know, really towards the end, I think that it partly just bleeds out to the rest of the community. They become very frustrated with this guy. And again, like this is part of the, you know, issue with like centralized uh, schemes and things, right? Like they become a lot more demanding of Satoshi uh, for whatever reason. And because he's there and uh, he's capable of being demanded too, uh, they stomp and kick their feet. And, you know, they're (laughs) saying all these things on these threads where, you know, uh, they're just basically like kind of impetuous children. Um, And I think, you know, the relationship really devolves by the end. And I think, you know, one of my big conclusions is uh, after doing this research is I don't think Satoshi could have continued 
continued. I don't think there's like a scenario where Satoshi kept being the leader of the Bitcoin project at the end of 2010. It felt like there was a natural sort of conclusion where Satoshi had done everything that he could. He had used his authority to keep Bitcoin secure. And in mortgaging that authority, the users sort of became distrustful and moved beyond his authority and influence and, you know, basically assorted control. And I think it was sort of a gradual uh, move to a break that, you know, I think most people would say now is like probably pretty inevitable, but it was it was still interesting because I had always thought, you know, Satoshi kind of just laid down the sword and, you know, had walked away. And now I think that there was no way he could have stayed around. That's a really interesting insight. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, um, you know, in the open source community, and there's this ethos of, you know, you should be able to contribute and everyone should be able to contribute. And it's not about, you know, having one kind of uh, king or leader or God or whatever. It's just like, we, we can all contribute and we're all equal. Uh, and I think there's an interesting point you you made in the article where at an earlier stage, it was seen like the code was, you know, you can view it, but it was all the contributions had to go through Satoshi. Yeah, and that was just a product of the way the code base was structured, right? You actually need to update the repository and push the code to the users. Uh, and that was something that, you know, it seems like there it was more kind of open. Satoshi would give the keys to things. And this is where it gets kind of confusing. Like we don't really know who had keys to what at which times. Uh, so the most kind of famous example of this that I think the article gets into where it's it's kind of gray is you know, the Bitcoin.org website. So Satoshi was, you know, the beginning, like he's the inventor of the code. He's the lead developer. He's the maintainer of the website. He's the admin of the only forum. So he has like sort of all this consolidated power. Uh, and he does do a job of kind of offering people and getting people into the community. There's one kind of small note here of this developer named David Parrish, who just basically tells Sirius uh, Marty Malmi that he just like is interested in coding and they make him a maintainer of Bitcoin, the project, which is kind of crazy, right? That would have just told you that the barrier to entry there uh, was pretty low. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting because, you know, with the website in particular, like we don't really know who had access to it. But at some point in 2010, uh, it becomes clear that one of the advantages on the website is now that Bitcoin is, you know, great for cheap, fast payments and that it's competitive with credit cards, right? So what do we make of a, of a development like that, right? Do we think that, did Satoshi approve that? Did he know that? I mean, obviously he was around when that change was made. Uh, you know, we don't know if he did it directly or if somebody else did it or if he was aware of it. Uh, I think we're assuming that he was aware of it based on some of the things that he had said uh, thereafter. So it, again, it's hard to draw conclusions on some of Satoshi's, um, you know, uh, actions and decisions uh, because, you know, he wasn't the most expressive and explanatory about uh, what he was doing. And again, you know, there was sort of this collaborative nature of the project, um, you know, it makes it tough to tell. Again, and this is, I would say, if this is something that concerns you, <laughs> like if you really are curious to know what Satoshi would have wanted, I think as, you know, in some ways we all are, and in some ways, you know, we try not to be, um, you know, it's hard to really figure out what he would have wanted in that case and what he was okay with, right? Was he okay with people just kind of being a little bit more, uh, if this gets people to adopt Bitcoin, then that's fine, even though it's not really true. Is that what he thought? Um, we don't really know, right? Like to what extent he believed these things or, did, or didn't. And uh, yeah, I think that's part of the enduring uh, complications of Satoshi and that really kind of foreshadows the later battles amongst developers and the different factions in the community is that I don't think Satoshi was always clear on what he wanted. I don't think everyone within the project always thought that we should do what Satoshi wanted. And I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about like how to view the later stages of the project, um, you know, I almost like sort of view the block size wars and the things that followed as, you know, they're, they're part of this inherent riddle, which is that, you know, Satoshi is a single, you know, or maybe, you know, he's a, he's a single man or group who invents decentralized money. <laughs> and there's just like sort of an inherent contradiction 
definition in that, uh, where the project needs to move beyond him to succeed on its very definition. And I think I sort of view the early years of Bitcoin as as, as that's the central conflict is that is Bitcoin moving behind, beyond the contradiction at its birth, where it's, you know, it's one guy who invented decentralized money, where it's it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's a contradiction into itself. Yeah, interesting idea there. And another one that I think is worth exploring is when maybe people are first learning about Bitcoin, they might hear someone, quote unquote, selling Bitcoin, the idea of Bitcoin to them and saying, oh, look, it's never been hacked. There's no bugs. And it's like, uh, not really. Like there was this value overflow incident. There was the um, 2013 fork. There was the 2018 CVE with in, you know inflation bug. There have been bugs uh, found in Bitcoin. There have been bugs exploited in Bitcoin. And maybe that is uncomfortable for people, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think so in some ways. I'm not uncomfortable by it. I want to understand what happened in Bitcoin. And I like having, I think that increases my confidence is like understanding what Bitcoin has persevered through. Um, and I don't think that Bitcoin has to be quote unquote, like perfect in that way. Uh, every time I think uh, to me, I, I understand that Bitcoin is an invention. I understand the invention as being a money that is outside of government influence control that is operated as an open source uh, platform. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to constantly evaluate Bitcoin against a bunch of altcoins. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have to uh, take that perspective. And I think we should want to understand what happened with Bitcoin and, and how it progressed. Because I think the danger is when we hold perceptions that aren't true and we become to believe sort of like myths about the project. So I'll give you an example of something I've really been kind of chewing on. I think a lot of people maybe before this article came out or just you know the common thinking is that, you know, uh, when Gavin Andreessen took over the project after Satoshi, that he somehow cheated that, that, uh, that outcome or that he kind of like overstepped his authority by like sort of seizing power or that Satoshi like just maybe made a mistake and gave Bitcoin to the wrong guy. And I think there's something inherently weird about that viewpoint, because if you believe that, you actually would have to believe that the users weren't in control of the project at that point or that they that the users were capable of being duped or uh, that they somehow got hoodwinked in this transition. And I think the fact is that the, the users were in control when Satoshi was around and the users were in control when Gavin was around. And there just was a reason that that transition took place and that it was the users who decided. Um, and that if you don't think that the users decided that, then you actually probably think that Bitcoin operated much differently then than it does now. Uh, so I think that was another interesting realization for me was that, uh, you know, some of these myths that <laughs> that propagate, they say a lot about us, like more than maybe the times, right? Right. And maybe in order to talk about Bitcoin, sometimes people have this sort of, they want to talk about it in a way that comforts them more to say, oh, it's never been hacked or it's always, it was this way. It was this way from the start and this way forever. And it's like, well, there are some changes that are allowed in Bitcoin, obviously some changes that are non-starters and never going to happen. Um, but things can change uh, if enough users go with it. Well, I think that's the other fascinating thing is that I think a lot of the early or so, some of the earlier developers in Bitcoin actually didn't understand Bitcoin and don't as we do it today. Um, and that to me is really interesting. So like Gavin Andreessen, who's a really strong uh, component of this piece, uh, the person who succeeded Satoshi, I think that Gavin has a lot of uh, displays a lot of thinking about Bitcoin that is very antithetical to how we think about it today. And the article goes into that where, you know, towards the end, one of the, you know, central mysteries, I think, is that what really did Gavin and Satoshi have in common? They're just such opposite figures. Satoshi's this mysterious guy who doesn't give any personal information about himself. Gavin is this guy who like, you know, he tells you where he lives, you know, where you know, he let, where his wife does. Uh, you see his picture online. Um, you know, even his first email to Satoshi is like, hey, how are you doing? Like, wh- where did you go to school? Like, how, how can I help you <laughs> with Bitcoin? You know, he's just this like very open uh, sort of guy. And then, you know, Satoshi's the polar opposite. And um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's one of the enduring mysteries of like, okay, like, what did they see 
seeing each other as collaborators because obviously they, you know, they worked very tightly together for some time. And by the end, you know, it's clear that Gavin's thinking on Bitcoin is like, you know, he makes some comment at the end of the piece, but, you know, he's like, oh, the perfect monetary uh, policy for Bitcoin would be uh, if it was like, you know, governed by a board of economists. But, you know, 21 million Bitcoins is fine too or something like that, right? So he'll <laughs> he'll sort of like say these sort of things now where you're like, okay, like this, this person didn't understand Bitcoin as we did today, but he was still at for some period the leader of the project. And to me, that's really fascinating because I think it says a lot about, I don't know, just like that Bitcoin was an invention. It wasn't able to be understood by everyone uh, so early at all times. Uh, and yeah, the, I think those people made mistakes, but we, we should be able to evaluate them somewhat honestly, right? And uh, maybe um, maybe we'll learn something important, I guess, about how human beings come to terms with invention, yeah. right? That sometimes it takes time and conflict. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also, it's fair to say that there were implications that maybe they couldn't have seen in those days, right? Like obviously the block size war being a good example where, you know, it was seen like, oh, it should be cheap and free forever or cheap and accessible and fast forever. Well, I, I would actually say like what's amazing is like there's a quote in there that I stuck in from like his for one of his first interviews in uh, 2011. And he like Gavin actually projects the, the entirety of the conflict. He says uh, the quote is basically at some point when we scale up the project, people are going to have to start trusting central servers and the people who run Bitcoin on their home computers aren't going to like that. I mean, this is in 2011, right? So uh, he's already sort of like, I think there's like an interesting phenomenon in Bitcoin where if you actually look at the text, it's it's sort of like at some point, everybody kind of predicts their own their own downfall. <laughs> and I think with Gavin, it's like, you know, he he like he knew that he saw that coming, right? And uh, it's almost it's almost like you pick that exact line out and it's like, that's the future there. And he predicts the future and he predicts the exact issue, but he's incapable of actually uh, avoiding that future outcome. Yeah. He, and and that's the interesting thing about history, right? Is, is sometimes we'll learn things like that. Yeah. And it makes you wonder what things do we think now in April 2021 as the quote unquote Bitcoin community, or if you will, just kind of people who are interested in Bitcoin, what do we think now that's actually wrong? And we're only going to find that out in five or 10 years time. Yeah, that's what I think. Like, that's what keeps me coming back to to this period in Bitcoin is that I, I think we should all be in a process of learning about Bitcoin and understanding Bitcoin. You know, myself, I've been here since 2013. I've seen the narrative around Bitcoin change pretty substantially from, you know, originally it was kind of, uh, you know, a lot about payments, then it became building applications uh, in, uh, on top of the blockchain. And, and now we're sort of in this great macro, uh, you know, everybody's a, <laughs> everybody's a macro economist who, who understands about in the imports and exports of all, all these countries globally, right? So I think that, um, I don't know, if I'm a little bit jaded to the fact that we've figured out Bitcoin at this point, it's only because I've seen other people think the same thing. And um, look, we may find when we look back that this is a period of Bitcoin's history where we held assumptions that later proved to be untrue, that we were naive about things, uh, that we were overly optimistic about things. And in the end, that might make this period of Bitcoin no different than any other. Uh, but each period of Bitcoin does contribute in moving it forward, right? And I think that, I don't know, I've over the years, it's been hard for me to make strong statements about what I think will happen with Bitcoin because I just think that, um, I don't know, I, I, maybe it's just because I lack a, a lot of certainty as a person. <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes think, think that, but... Um, okay, here's, here's, here's you know, the I thing don't know. Could we say that, uh, okay, now in 2021, you know, 12 years in, that there are some things that we do know better, that we know, you know, like there are certain things that we know it's not going to go that way, right? Like we know we're not going to do on-chain scaling. We know we're not going to do, you know, uh, we know that, um, you know, privacy is going to have a cost right now like if you want to be private on chain it's going to cost you more that's right we know that yeah we do learn over time i mean i think that you no know, i would categorize the current uh, bullish attitude towards bitcoin right now as basically being you know the idea that bitcoin is mainstreaming as an investment asset that it is a digital gold that past a 
descriptions of Bitcoin were perhaps uh, inaccurate and that, you know, we're now kind of, you know, I guess I would say the Bitcoin Tina line of thinking is that, you know, we're at the start of a super cycle. The super cycle is Bitcoin crossing the chasm into, uh, you know, a new class of investors who, who previously weren't involved before and that this is going to catapult uh, Bitcoin through, you know, some sort of mega up cycle that will get you hundreds of likes <laughs> and retweets if, if you if you agree with this line of thinking. So, I mean, look, I think that's that's a plausible, it's a plausible uh, scenario. What I would say as an alternative hypothesis is that to me, if Bitcoin drops 80% at the end of this year uh, and marginally outperforms, you know, past periods where we've had downturns, I am not, my opinion on Bitcoin is not affected by that. I will still believe in Bitcoin. So what's the harm, right? I guess that's how I look at it. And I look at, uh, I think there are a lot of people with really sky high expectations for where Bitcoin is right now. And look, if we, if we get there, then that's great. I have no problem with that. To be fair, I have no problem if Bitcoin goes up forever from here. That doesn't bother me. I, but I'm also okay if it doesn't. And I think I worry sometimes about people setting the expectations for new uh, people who are coming in the space, right? Because I think that, um, I don't know, if you're coming into Bitcoin now thinking you're going to be part of this great up forever super cycle, are you really going to be a Bitcoiner who has the habits that we want for Bitcoiners, right? Are you going to be a skeptical person who evaluates claims, who really kind of asks themselves, uh, you know, if they're doing the right thing for Bitcoin? Are you going to be a militant participant of the network who is going to, you know, uh, be a sovereign user in, in the way that we want, right? Are we teaching those values and kind of moving them along? Um, I think that uh, uh, that would be my hope is that we're able to do some of that. And I think, I don't know, I've, I've always appreciated like skepticism as a tool to get there because I think particularly remember the periods of Bitcoin where the people who have the mainstream views today were, you know, you mentioned Bitstein and Pierre Richard and, you know, I work with Pierre over at Kraken and I'll, we'll talk about it and I'll say Pierre was a very marginalized figure like in his time. Pierre was not well understood. He was not mainstream. He was correct. And history will sort of bear him out as being, you know, one of the early Bitcoin economists who was foundational. But there was a large period of time where, you know, he wasn't someone who was viewed as, as, as a mainstream Bitcoiner. And I think, you know, there's likely people who are like that right now. There are probably fringe voices, you know, who might have the right idea about things. Yeah, that's an interesting idea to contemplate. And, you know, it, it might be someone who says, oh, maybe we need to be treating Bitcoin privacy more importantly. Uh, and maybe that voice becomes more prominent, right? Like uh, it, that's one example. Or maybe um, things will change as the value rises. And I think this calls back to the point you were making um, in your article as well, because as you kind of go through and catalog what's going on, you sort of say, hey, now the price is this, or now Bitcoin is worth millions of dollars as in as the total market, right? not the price. And I think it's as the value rises, that's when we start to see new conflicts come because now the stakes are higher, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think it's interesting where Satoshi, I, I got the sense in researching this article. And, you know, again, this is something that I wouldn't have expected either that uh, towards the end, I, I think he felt like he was running out of time. There was a sense where I got from the value overflow exploit where he knew that in order to kind of protect Bitcoin against the kind of attacks that it was then facing from a more experienced kind of group that he had to take certain actions. I think that is sort of what accounts for his like quick activity, how he why he becomes short, why he doesn't really kind of explain himself. I think he's like kind of keen not to play his cards and, and to let people in to see what he's doing. Um, and I think one of the things in analyzing his last post is he sort of kind of turns off some of the features that he turns on in the wake of the value overflow exploit, where it's like almost today it would be kind of weird, right? Like, so he's even like, you know, they they basically like if you downloaded a new version of the software, you had a hard coded block. So everybody had to agree on this like certain block, just kind of like weird concepts that we wouldn't have right now. Um, and you wonder, is that even like a rational free market like way to <laughs> decide something? But 
you know, he kind of turns that off before he leaves and he does actually remove his name from the code, which is actually something I didn't know that he had done, right? He actually turns the code over to Bitcoin developers. Uh, I got the sense that he was running out of time and that he just knew that his authority and influence that he kind of had to overplay it for some period in order to sure Bitcoin up. And that at that point, you know, uh, he was fine to walk away. That's how I felt. That's my reading of it. I think, you know, I've tried to lay out what I can as as being, I think these are the important things that happened during Satoshi's time. I mean, some of these are going to be my assertions. Uh, hopefully, I wrote the article in such a way where, you know, if you really want to dig into these citations and kind of, you know, come to your own conclusion, you know, I've left a paper trail, right? So you can really kind of go down the side roads. And, you know, ultimately, I think after writing it, I felt like I've left people a roadmap from like, this is Bitcoin 2009 to end of 2010. Here's what I think the important streets are. <laughs> um, but if you want to, you know, I'd certainly encourage that exploration and encourage more people to kind of dig into that time. Back to the show in a moment. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet. And these things were not around in the early days of Satoshi. Uh, but now with hardware wallets, you can secure your Bitcoins in a much more secure way. These are like a little locked down computer that is specifically designed for the purpose of security. With the cold card, you can use it without even directly plugging it to a computer. You can use a micro SD card and you can use your cold card with popular wallets like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum or Blue Wallet and do air-gapped transactions. Cold card offers all sorts of features. It's great in a single signature setup, but, but it also works as part of a multi-signature setup when you are ready to take that step up. So go to coinkite.com and use the code Lavera for a discount. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So you can create a setup where you hold two keys and Unchained hold that third key. So there's no setup or storage fees. If you build this on your own, just go to unchained.com and you bring two hardware wallets, you can give that a try. But if you need some guidance, they've got a concierge service. This is available both for individuals and for businesses. So they'll ship you the hardware wallets, they'll do the calls with you, they'll get you set up and deposit $1,000 in your vault. Use the code Lavera for a discount there. Unchained Capital have all sorts of services. They also offer loans. So if you need liquidity and you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, that's also a possibility with Unchained. So go to unchained.com and you can find out more there. And lastly, CypherSafe. Are you thinking about your backups? Whether you're using a single signature or a multi-signature setup, make sure you have a metal backup seed product. The Cypher wheel comes in a wheel shape. It's stainless steel and it has been designed to be rust-proof, pet-proof, tamper-evident, waterproof, all of these things so that you can make sure that you or your loved ones can access those bitcoins if something were to occur. Think about if you are just sitting on that piece of paper that comes with your hardware wallet, well, what would you do if your house went up on fire? Have you got something in mind? Have you got a backup plan? Well, this is where the CypherSafe uh, product, the Cypher wheel, comes in. So go and get yours at cyphersafe.io. Use the code Lavera for a discount. Back to the show. And so, as you rightly point out, most of this stuff is totally public, right? It's it's forum posts, it's uh, Satoshi's emails uh, and posts on you know the mailing list. It's uh, code that was, uh, I believe, back then it was on SourceForge before it went on to GitHub, right? And um, and then some of it is actually private, right? Because it's email correspondence. So, can you tell us a little bit about those email correspondence, uh, that email correspondence between Satoshi and other early contributors like you know Gavin or Mike Hearn or um, whoever else? 
Yeah, definitely. So Mike Kern has done a lot. To, he's actually published his full correspondence with Satoshi, which is rare. Like not a lot of early Satoshi contributors uh, have done that. Uh, so what I actually did in researching this is you can go into the SourceForge logs and you'll see uh, that Satoshi actually does thank a lot of developers. Because as I said, again, it was very egalitarian in the beginning. Everybody was kind of working on code. They were working on their own patches. Uh, so what would happen is people would just send Satoshi pieces of code and he would merge them in. And you can look through SourceForge and he thanks anywhere between like 10 to 15 people for submitting, I was actually able to reach out to five of those people and kind of talk with them and get some of their accounts of the process. And, you know, they were pretty keen to position Satoshi as just a down to earth guy. Like they were using this new project. They saw his email, they emailed him. <laughs> he was nice about it and updated their code. And that was their interaction with him. They didn't think he was mysterious or weird or, or anything. And I think the article also tries to get at uh, how quickly Satoshi got mythologized and really that that started with the users disassociating from him. But that early on, the users had a very strong connection with him. They felt like he was one of them and that they were, uh, you know, embarking on this project that was, um, that we, they were equal participants, right? Like, I don't think anyone at, at really early on, at least in the, in the beginning of 2010, it does change over time. You know, nobody really thought anything of Satoshi. They didn't think that he wasn't named Satoshi Nakamoto. They didn't think that he wasn't a Japanese man who happened to be running this project. They just saw him as a very kind of open, accessible figure. And that's really contrast. And I think what's really amazing is how quickly that changed. If you think by middle summer 2010, people just thought he was a regular guy that they could talk to. And then by the end of 2010, he's sort of this mythical figure that they're drawing pictures of him as a woman. And they're like talking about like what he does in his free time and like how his sleep schedule has changed. And and then by April 2011, really, when the, when the piece kind of concludes, uh, the main, mainstream press is coming in and they're calling him this mysterious shadowy figure. Uh, it, it's just amazing, like how quickly perceptions about him change so drastically. And I think well, that was one of the things I wanted to get across uh, to your point about, you know, the nature of the private correspondence that was used. So, you know, Gavin Andreessen has a trove of emails. He was one of the most frequent uh, correspondents of Satoshi. Uh, Gavin has not made his entire email archive public. He was able to send me some things, which I've quoted in the piece. They're marked with asterisks. I did not receive those full emails. I received copy text from Gavin of, of this is what this said. Uh, so I'm taking him as at his word that those are uh, real correspondences. I also received uh, something else of the same effect from a, a user named Ribic, uh, who was who was pretty active on the forums back in the day. He was actually the guy who named uh, the smallest of unit of Bitcoin Satoshi's. Uh, he was the one who came up with that <laughs> proposal. Um, and he thinks that was the first thing that was ever named after Satoshi and that that happened after he left. Um, that's an interesting part of it, right? I think as we go, as history kind of develops, I would hope that more of these early people feel comfortable turning over their emails. Uh, a few people have you know, told me that they'll be more comfortable go going through their archives for me going forward, which um, I certainly appreciate. There are other people who won't do that under any circumstances. They don't feel like it's appropriate to hand over private emails. Um, look, I think that this stuff benefits from additional scrutiny. Um, you know, in the case of the email that I got from Ribic, which I thought was really interesting, you know, he attests that Satoshi, he, he offered to pay Satoshi for making a fix to the code. And Satoshi said, uh, no, thank you. I have plenty of Bitcoins, uh, which is interesting because I don't think that there's another citation or thing that I could find where Satoshi admits that he had bitcoins at all, let alone enough to turn down, you know, a reward for them. So you can learn things from these, you know, small pieces of evidence, right? 
Yeah, that's an interesting one because that's another commonly commonly cited thing where they say, oh, Satoshi never spent his coins. And well, I guess we don't know, right? So, I mean, he's rumored to have whatever, have half a million coins or 600,000 coins that never moved. But for all we know, he had that's like the main coins that he mined in the early days. And then maybe he's got another amount of coins that later were spent and we never know. Or, he, or it's like some people have this kind of altruistic vision of Satoshi who literally just created this thing and literally never spent a sat. Well, I think that's what's interesting, right? So today, Satoshi is just whatever we want him to be um, because he's not here. So we're free to manipulate and, you know, uh, alter the course of, you know, his dialogue to our own ends. And that's why I think the Satoshi mystery, like, or Satoshi, not the Satoshi mystery. I don't really care who Satoshi is. I care about his lingering authority and influence over the project, which is so palpable, right? Even the idea that Bitcoin is, you know, sort of this macro hedge asset, this, this kind of, I would say that this is the cycle's narrative of de jure. I mean, there's just people who spend most of their time on Twitter trying to act as if like Satoshi somehow justifies them thinking these things, right? Uh, and that goes back to what we were saying in the beginning, where uh, we want Satoshi to think what we're doing for Bitcoin is right. After all these years, I don't know how to square that, right? I, I don't, I think the people who did bad things against Bitcoin wanted to do what was right for Satoshi. And I think the people who did good things for Bitcoin also wanted to do the right thing for Satoshi. And then I would also say that there's a group of people who who like were actually like, you know, had a lot of foresight and, and didn't care what Satoshi thought at all. So one of the more interesting minor characters in this piece, I thought was uh, Michael Markart, uh, Thamos, uh, who operates the Bitcoin talk forums now where, you know, he was one of the first guys who, uh, you know, if you think about it at the time, it's actually kind of impressive that, you know, he was just this 20 year old college kid. And he just openly just says, oh, I don't, you know, to Satoshi, like, I don't think this is how <laughs> this should this should be run. I want to be able to run whatever transaction type I want. You can't tell me what to do. That is, how we would think about Bitcoin today. But again, he was a minority person then, right? That view was a bit of a minority view. And I think it's interesting to me, like if you think of Bitcoin as this sort of saga or play of ideas, that there are some ideas that grow and they become more powerful over time through a competition of ideas, right? So today, uh, back then when, when Thamos did that, uh, there was a lot of hate towards him for speaking out against Satoshi or, you know, going against the grain or trying to, you know, people thought he was trying to cause a fork. Uh, today, I think we would think what he did was sensible, that it was the proper expression of what Bitcoin was. And to me, that's really interesting because that would suggest that Satoshi could have been somebody who was on the receiving end of, of what we think of Bitcoin today and was, was would have been wrong by today's standards in his actions. So I don't know. I think that's the interesting thing about history is we can use it as a framework to look at our own uh, perceptions and how they've changed over time. And I think with this piece, you get a lot of those instances where Satoshi doesn't really give us 100% answers. He can't. That's one of the reasons we continue to fight over <laughs> what he thinks. And we can move past him. Him, but I don't, I'm not sure we are. Well, it's funny because you'll see people every now and then they'll write a post or they'll tweet something and say something like, dear Satoshi, I hope you're doing well. Blah, blah, blah. Like they're kind of uh, calling back to that idea. Oh, like the, the coin, but like the Coinbase people like sent him as their IPO thing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like all right. I thought that was like, <laughs> I thought they were like, they, and they tweeted out about it, how they sent Satoshi that their IPO filing and they, or they put him as like a notice or something. And I was just like, good God. Yeah, I really wonder what Satoshi would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought of that. But I don't I don't know. That gets to the point, right? Like it's Satoshi is this figure who like we just we want his approval. He he is this like this, you know, estranged father figure to us, um, in a lot of ways. 
But what if he, what if he, like, okay, maybe Satoshi's dead, right? But what if he just kind of set, wanted, made it more like, I just wanted to make this technology and then step away, you know? And it's not like this big, not imbuing this big grand moral arc to it. And like other people just kind of project a story or certain characteristics because they want, you know, maybe it sells better or it just, it, it, it jives easily because it, it's a story and it kind of has that, uh, there's like a conflict arc to it. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting when I um I look back through Satoshi's writings a lot li- lately, and one of the things that really kind of gets me is that um, Satoshi talks a lot about timing. I think that's something that's not really thought of enough, right? When you give when you give Satoshi an idea, or when he's asked for a direct answer of things, he often defers to a timing. So he doesn't actually say yes or no. So one of the interesting things is you, there's a part in the piece where Jeff Garzik, another developer who's you know kind of uh, kind of viewed somewhat negatively now, sort of asks him uh, if you should. If they should increase the block size, which was, again, the random piece of code that he had just stuffed in there pretty recently. And he says, yeah, if we get closer to needing it, right? So Satoshi, um, again, I think this is like, again, trying to pin him down. I think he's someone who's a little bit more apt to say like, okay, maybe all these ideas are good at a certain time, but the timing is the important part. That also struck me in the email that Gavin had sent me about, again, I think I mentioned the topic where they were talking about whitelisting the transaction types. And this is where Thamos was kind of arguing about where Satoshi also doesn't say no. He says that, you know, oh, okay, like uh, maybe at some point what well, this isn't like a pie in the sky idea, we can do this. So he doesn't actually say yes or no. He, he talks about when. And I think that's actually kind of interesting if you think about it through that lens, that that actually might say a little bit about, you know, Satoshi's idea of what, you know, maybe all these things could have happened but just you know the question one but even now i'm navel gazing and i'm just like i'm choosing how to view satoshi like on my own (laughs) for my own purposes right and also speaking of timing i think another relevant question around timing is the whole wikileaks and going to the government aspect so let's get into that so what was satoshi's view around the use of bitcoin for funding of wikileaks at that time yeah, I, I sort of get into the end of the article. It really accelerates uh, in terms of I was trying to show just how fast the conversation was accelerating. So we have this kind of like period at the beginning of 2010 where it's you know pretty idyllic, things move slow, and then by the end of 2010, there's really just like a series of canonical debates that are just I don't even know how. I think we're still trying to answer them today. Uh, so one of them would be there was a question about BitSense. So it's like how should you measure like the smallest units of Bitcoin? Like should they be displayed like dollars? And there's uh, BitDNS, which is this idea that you can build applications on Bitcoin. So it's like, oh, should Satoshi, should we fork? Should we do all these things? And then the WikiLeaks argument comes along, which I think is also pretty symbolic, right? At its root, it's about how political the Bitcoin project should be. Should it be defined by being anti-state, anti-authority? I would argue we don't actually know what Satoshi thought about that. And I think one of the reasons I included the earlier passage uh, in this piece um, about Slashdot, so this would have been when the uh, early developers like promoted Bitcoin through Slashdot, which was a famous internet aggregator at the time and that drove a ton of traffic and that sort of crashed and that caused negative aspects to Bitcoin. I don't really know. Satoshi only gives one comment on WikiLeaks, which is that, you know, oh, this kicked the hornet's nest and now they're coming from us. So just establishing the actual order of events. So what happened was in November, Amir Taki, who's actually a pretty famous Bitcoin developer for some more radical reasons later on, he proposes that Bitcoin should help WikiLeaks. Why? Uh, WikiLeaks is like, you know, losing access to the banking system. Okay, that makes sense. So now you have another effort where it's like a grassroots 
its users are trying to promote Bitcoin for something. PC World kind of picks up this article. Uh, Satoshi says, oh, we can't do this. This is crazy. Uh, it turns out that WikiLeaks had already decided not to do it. So Satoshi was actually just reacting to old FUD. <laughs> he wasn't even reacting to new FUD. <laughs> yeah. And like, we don't, I, I don't know. I actually don't know if Satoshi object to the use of, of WikiLeaks using Bitcoin, which I don't know why he would have. But I think he was, I think he saw it. And this is, you know, one of my theses is about looking at history, I think is like everybody in the present is trying to avoid the mistakes of the past. Uh, and I think Satoshi probably would have seen the WikiLeaks thing as causing a similar issue to the Slashdot thing earlier, right? Because what happens is when the when the users went and popularized Bitcoin, when they actually went online and, and kicked up all this noise about it, that is what caused the attacks against Bitcoin that compromised the monetary policy. So I think Satoshi would have seen something like WikiLeaks and his statement was kick the hornet's nest. Now they're coming to us. I think that he saw that as, as potentially being one of those scenarios where, okay, this is going to be just like that thing, but even worse. Uh, and he was ultimately wrong about that, I think, if you look at it that way. But we don't know, right? Uh, he only kind of made one comment and then he he ceased responding and you know, WikiLeaks never accepted Bitcoin anyway. So hard to draw conclusions. But yeah, certainly I think a more of a minor event than than people give it credit for today. I think, you know, Satoshi is kind of viewed as someone who saw WikiLeaks coming and then like ran for the hills and <laughs> wasn't around anymore. Uh, <laughs> but now what about the CIA part, right? The uh, Gavin going to present at the CIA. So I think that's the point where most people say, yeah, that was the like bug out point. Yeah, another event that's really shrouded in mystery, uh, which is funny because you can actually go and like Gavin's slides from the event are totally public. Um, there's actually he appears on like a YouTube show after the event where he like talks about it with this guy named Bruce Wagner, who had a famous YouTube show at the time. Well, I guess famous, like a thousand people probably would have watched it in 2011, which was a big deal uh, where he talks about it. The CIA event, uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting to see Gavin's emails to Satoshi about this, where even uh, Gavin was pretty about face about it. He was like, oh, it's the U.S. intelligence uh, it's an agency that does, you know, funding for startups around U.S. intelligence. I'm going to go talk to them. But then this is where Gavin gets kind of interesting is this, that I think Gavin, you know, it's a lot about presentation, right? So he writes a forum post and he's like, Gavin will visit the CIA. That's the name of the post. And his first, uh, again, like this is the famous last words thing. He's like, I don't want this post to cause controversy. <laughs> and it's like, OK, well, you probably shouldn't have done what you just <laughs> you just did then, right? Like there would have been a better way to approach that. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's another event where it seems seems like there's there's more information about that than, you know, people will commonly spread. Like, I think, you know, there's been some major people on Twitter, uh, you know, who sort of think that at that meeting, Gavin was somehow corrupted. And, you know, this like was a government infiltration of Bitcoin. I think you could see that Gavin's ideas from Bit about Bitcoin were actually already becoming increasingly weird and different from the community like prior to that. Uh, and I would also say that his decision to attend the event was seen very positively. And I would argue that it was seen very positively because Satoshi was seen as such a mysterious kind of muted figure who was like kind of running away from authority. He didn't want WikiLeaks to happen. He became, he disappeared. He wasn't around. And then here comes this guy who he's not afraid. He's going to go to the CIA and just tell them about Bitcoin, you know, even if they stick him in a gulag somewhere, right? So I think that they saw Gavin as someone who was willing to stand up for them. And then, again, this is where I would go back to, I think the users decided that Gavin was in charge. And, and, and again, how could they not have? If you believe that Bitcoin is governed by the users, then how could 
Gavin have ever ruled otherwise, right? So I think part of the inherent appeal of Gavin uh, was that he was willing to do that. And I think that users felt like he was willing to do that on behalf of them. And I think they felt an affinity for him uh, that they didn't feel for Satoshi at that time, for whatever reason. And I think, um, you know, this is where people are emotive. They choose to feel about things a certain way. And uh, now we feel differently. But back then, you know, most developers were really, you know, kind of behind Gavin on this. This was this was widely seen as kind of like a display of leadership and that thinking about a free market, you know, the free market had elected Gavin as the leader and supporting him on this initiative, uh, even though now we view this today as, you know, this totally crazy event. And I think I write in there, it's, you know, it's almost a perversion of the ideals of Bitcoin to think that any, you know, lead developer of the Bitcoin project would, would you know, in any way liaise with the government. Uh, but it happened, right? Yeah. And so that was, you know, 2010. And I think it, it changed, it changes over time that a lot of the developers, their perception of Gavin went downwards because they thought, okay, he's making the wrong decisions on the part of the, on behalf of the project. He's kind of overly centralizing it. He's, you know, trying to scale it the wrong way. These were some of the concerns, I guess. And this is also uh, even maybe foreshadowed in your other article about uh, P2SH, right? Yeah, Gavin makes a lot of mistakes. I think that in my private conversations with Gavin, I think that he remains like a very interesting relic of that time. I think he I think he had a lot of preconceptions about Bitcoin that, again, are interesting and, and there it's, it's difficult to think that somebody in his position could have held those things. One of the things that still is remarkable to me is that Gavin, I think, never thought Bitcoin could be worth that much. Thought isn't ir- irrational, right? Like, I think that uh, the rational scientific person who came to Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, and had saw Bitcoin go to $1,000, I don't think that, like, there was this idea that Bitcoin would be so valuable that it would be, like, the most valuable commodity ever created on planet Earth. Like, I don't, I don't think many people had that assumption. Certain people did, but I think that that was a fringe uh, part of the, the community thought. You know, I, I, I last talked to Gavin on Bitcoin Pizza Day, and he was remarking about uh, how uh, the government money printing in the wake of COVID was very bad. And I said to him, I was like, well, this is, you know, again, this is one of the reasons the developers like of the Bitcoin project, like, you know, went the way that they did, right, uh, which isn't the way that you wanted. And I think he still sort of struggles with some of those things. But I think he remembers a Bitcoin that was colored by a lot of different conversation, right? The idea that, um, you know, users, you know, self-sovereignty is a goal is something that like, I think would have eluded him. I've encouraged him to read the Bitcoin standard over the years, but I don't think he has. But I think he would find the ideas in the Bitcoin standard to be very like things that he had never heard before, really, because again, they weren't very mainstream at the time. I think like uh, what Safadian did with the, the Bitcoin standard, which again, I will vouch for is probably the only important book about Bitcoin ever written, is that he put together a lot of ideas that I think prior to him vocalizing them, you know, were not widely publicized. And really, I think like if you look at the block size conflict as well, it's it's a failure of people understanding econo- the economics coin. And how could you? How could you have understood there'd only been one Bitcoin cycle? And we barely even know if there's Bitcoin cycles now, though that I would argue that that overwhelmingly seems the case now that they're renting a third one. Uh, but how would you have known? Like, uh, you know, in, the, in 2015, 2016, like people just didn't know that Bitcoin wasn't failing. How would you, how could you have possibly known that? Right. You know, and of course, again, you go and say, oh, well, Pierre Richard knew that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, he was, he was the one guy. <laughs> Minority, yeah. Like, I mean, there was a few people who were coming from an Austrian perspective, like Michael Goldstein, Pierre, and, you know, Daniel Krawitz before um, before he went all B-Casher. Yeah, but they all lived within like a four-block radius of each other in, <laughs> in like Texas, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was a few of us out here trying to talk about it from that point of view, but uh, not many, let's say, until Safedean sort of helped uh, popularize that way of thinking, at least inside the Bitcoin community, uh, if you will. Right. Well, I, I guess my point was basically that, you know, with, in, in talking about Gavin is that, um, I don't know, we, I think we can learn from his his experience of the project. And I think, uh, yeah, if you view these two pieces that I've written now in the, for Bitcoin history, it's like I'm trying to develop some of these characters and people over a span of time. And, you know, in the, in the P2SH article, Gavin does assert more authority. He becomes more of an authoritative leader. And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is looking at this article and reading the last days of Satoshi, it's like, would you not agree that Satoshi was someone who used his authority? He seems to have been very open about that and uh, very interested in un, uh, apologetic in the way he used his authority. And, you know, uh, could you argue that that was, you know, the wrong thing to do? But again, if you're taking over for someone, don't you want to do what they, you know, behave as they would have, right? I think one of the interesting lines that I pulled out of here, you know, if you go back to like Vlad Vonderlaan, who succeeded Gavin, I mean, he was one of the first ones who actually, you know, vocalized the idea of like, hey, like no developer should have authority over any of this stuff. Uh, so again, this where it, it becomes, okay, are people important to Bitcoin? I think there are a lot of people who want to pretend that Bitcoin, that people are not important to Bitcoin. But everywhere I look within Bitcoin, I see the effects of people who, you know, had the uh, will and foresight to think differently. And I think that time proved them correct. Uh, and we should celebrate those people. So in the case of Vlad Vanderlaan, I think that, you know, in the line in this piece, it's like, I think that's the first instance where I've ever seen a developer question the idea of whether, you know, whether Bitcoin development had to become decentralized in order for Bitcoin to be decentralized. And I question whether Satoshi like really actually understood that. I actually don't know that Satoshi understood the inherent riddle and the problem that his authority caused because he wielded his authority. <laughs> so then how could he possibly have had a perception of it? Uh, because he doesn't seem to have any proclivity to, to do that, right? So in that way, I, I think it's interesting to view Bitcoin as an incomplete project, right? That Satoshi couldn't have completed because Bitcoin eventually had to move beyond him in order to be completed. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So uh, Pete, do you have any uh, ideas or anything you're working on for your next article? Or what areas would you like to see uh, that you think, you know, there's more work that needs to be done? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I, I think I'm done with the back years. I think I've got everything uh, to, to 2012. Uh, so if people read the last days of Sochi and then you read the, uh, you know, uh, first Bitcoin war uh, piece back to back, that gets you up to 2012. I think that, uh, again, I, I like to think that this work is building to something. And I like to think that part of the reason that I've done a lot of this work in trying to understand these developers and these people is that I've wanted to honestly understand like where they came from and like how their ideas progressed over time and like try to really with a strong degree of certainty show that evolution. Because again, I don't like viewing people as bad. I don't think that Jeff Garzik and Gavin Andreessen and Roger Ver and these people who have become the great villains in Bitcoin's history were necessarily bad people. I think that we can learn a lot from understanding how their journeys in Bitcoin progressed. And I do think that there are also great heroes on the other side of that tale, whether it's the Luke Juniors or the Vlad Vanderlands or the Thamoses who do not get the credit that they deserve for having like very unique ideas uh, within Bitcoin and then through the force of will of their own humanity propagating them and then through the wisdom of the market, those ideas being validated over time. Uh, to me, I think it's important that we we view that that 
that way because I, I do think that, I mean, look at the conversation around Taproot right now. It's a great example, right? For people who are still following that. I think this is an argument that, you know, Taproot is still a conversation that's highly influenced by certain individuals. The Bitcoin development process is, in, to the extent that it's a meritocracy, is still very influenced by individuals. Um, that doesn't make that a bad thing. <clears throat> it just makes it something where I think we want to understand um, this process, right? Like Bitcoin is, um, it does have a governance process. Decisions are made. Decisions have to be made by people <laughs> who have to believe certain things. So if you trace these things back, you know, I don't know. I, I, it just, to me, it seems like as much as we want to make Bitcoin this amorphous code that is so big, it can't possibly ever be changed that it is, <clears throat> it does move to the directions of people. I don't know how you square that. And maybe that's uh, one of the riddles that I'm trying to solve. And maybe I don't ever get closer to understanding that. That's what, that's what keeps me thinking. Yeah, maybe we don't. I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's some things that will stay true about Bitcoin and we sort of understand those. And, you know, it's not everyone possible that uh, someone tries to compromise. There are people trying to compromise Bitcoin. Right? And so then it's like there's battles. There can be internal battles or people reviewing code and making sure to try to make sure that there's no malicious code or something being put in. What makes me worried is the stuff that we become very confident about uh, that I think that could easily be taken away from us. <laughs> I'm like, a, I'm definitely more of a clubhouse bear. So if people want to check me out on, on clubhouse. <laughs> but I think that, look, I mean, we, we're we're all hugging the number go up teddy bear like little kids these days and if I'm the parent <laughs> you know I, I don't know it's not going to take me too too far to, to really kind of hit us in the gut there so I, I don't know I think that I like to view my exploration of Bitcoin history as an exercise in adversarial thinking right I think like as Bitcoiners like we should have we should learn and know by now to be adversarial I was shaped by you know people who were adversarial towards me right I was originally a gatekeeper of, of information in my days as a as a journalist in the space, uh, I was my ideas were attacked, my work was attacked, uh, and ultimately through that process, I began to understand Bitcoin better than I did. Right, that that made me question things and deepen my understanding. Right, I think that I view Bitcoin toxicity as 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 a gift in that way. Right, I think it has been a tool that we've used. But I mean, certainly, uh, I'm not sure everybody can say that <laughs> can say that. But I don't know. That's why I try to pass that along. Those are the things that stay with me. Questions about okay, well, are are you really doing the best you can? for Bitcoin? Are you being an adversarial thinker? Are you really kind of doing your best to, to kind of further this stuff? And I look at this history of, okay, well, the more we can understand the past, the more we can understand, you know, how these things happened. And it does seem that certain people over time within Bitcoin have tried to abuse it and they've had, they've tried to move it in different ways. And, uh, you know, I would even say like, you know, as a result of this article with the last days of Satoshi, I think that, you know, if somebody today is coming up with an argument and they're saying like, oh, well, it really matters like who Satoshi was, like if someone who's into BSV or, or BCH, this article is like, oh, well, the users at that time like had already moved past Satoshi. So it doesn't care. I don't have to care about Satoshi because the users had already moved beyond him. Uh, and that gives me a higher degree of confidence in the, in the Bitcoin that I have today, right? Even in his own time, <laughs> Satoshi was someone who we moved past. We didn't need him anymore. And maybe that is the story of his disappearance, that it wasn't this, you know, that he laid down his arms uh, altruistically. It wasn't that he vanished afraid of WikiLeaks. It wasn't that he was spooked by the CIA. It was that we didn't need him. We picked somebody else and that ultimately Bitcoin is a product of us. Very fascinating. Pete, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Listeners, make sure you follow Pete online. I'll put the links in the show notes for the article. Pete, where can people find you online? 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore, uh, going by all caps Rizzo these days. Too many Peters out there. Got to really narrow it down. Uh, also uh, publishing on, on Bitcoin Magazine, uh, so you can check me out there. And uh, uh, leading the open source grants uh, program over at Kraken. Uh, so if you're a developer really doing great work in the space, uh, you know you want to apply for funding or uh, kind of pitch us on your project, uh, we definitely have open applications. You can go to uh, kraken.com uh, slash features slash grants. Uh, so we're taking applications there. And yeah, we'd love to chat with anybody who's doing really interesting stuff in the Bitcoin space. Fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. So what did you think there of that discussion with Pete and of his article? Are there things we speak about in the Bitcoin community with some level of surety that perhaps it's unjustified or perhaps without a recognition for the things that were going on in the early years where the understanding was not that well developed and perhaps the viewpoints that are popular now were not the popular ones then. So anyway, as usual, make sure you share the show with your friends and give it a rating and review five stars if you like it. That helps new people find me and find high quality information as they are joining the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, You can find me at stefanlevera.com. Thanks very much. And I will see you in the Citadels. Mm